morning, everybody. It is March 11th, 2022. We are almost out of winter, heading towards spring. Yet one more storm coming to the East Coast this weekend. Um, it is about 11, 11 a.m. on the East Coast, and it is Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. Today, my guest is Dr. Martin Marin, and Marty's coming to us from a, a different location, so the background looks a little different today. Good morning, Marty. Morning, Lisa. How are you? I am good. I am good. It's one of those Fridays where you say, yes, I'm ready for one. Yeah. <laughs> so lots you. going on. I hear you. Yep. Lots happening here. Yep. So the, the topic of the month is arrhythmias. Okay. And the subtopic is life with devices. So I thought we would start with some basic education for our listeners, because arrhythmias is a big word, and if you're not familiar with it, it might be a bit daunting. So yep. can you tell our listeners what arrhythmias are in general, and then we'll get to some specifics? Sure. The heart is, you know, controlled by essentially a electrical system, kind of like a house, it's wired, and um, it's that wiring, literally that causes each heartbeat to occur. Um, and um, occasionally that wiring can become abnormal or faulty and can trigger in a way that it shouldn't. And that causes what's called an irregular or abnormal rhythm. And those abnormal rhythms can be firing or originating from either the top or the bottom parts of the heart. And depending on where they originate from and what kind of abnormal rhythm they are, um, they can have different consequences. But essentially, an arrhythmia, an arrhythmia is essentially an abnormal electrical rhythm or pattern that a patient may be having or experiencing. Are there different grades of arrhythmias or different clinical significance behind different arrhythmias? Yes, no question. Different arrhythmias have different implications and, and, and um, therefore are kind of reacted to potentially in very different ways. Some are benign. You may not even, patients may not even feel that they have them um, and have therefore no consequence uh, at all. Uh, other rhythms um, can have uh, the complete different end of the spectrum, can be um, very impactful in terms of causing patients to feel poorly when they occur, and also can put patients at different risks as well, besides symptoms, including risk of stroke and even risk of passing out or can even be life-threatening arrhythmias. So it's a full spectrum, essentially. Um, and that's really why it's so important to know what abnormal rhythm a patient may be experiencing, because knowing that dictates enormously how we will approach the management of that arrhythmia in that individual patient. Okay, so let's break it down into the, the common arrhythmias in HCM. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about PVCs first, or PACs. Right. So what are PV and PACs and mm -hmm. what do they mean? Yeah, patients probably have heard two terms, APCs and PVCs. They make it simple, APCs, atrial premature contraction. And from the bottom chamber, it's usually called PVC, premature ventricular contraction. 
all those are are a premature or irregular beat, isolated beat of either the upper, which would be atrial, or if it's occurring in the bottom, ventricular. Atrial or ventricular extra beat that can either be felt or not felt by a patient. Typically, those would be extra beats that don't really have any consequence to them other than if a patient feels them, particularly if they're having a lot of them, they can be a nuisance, kind of a, a pain in the butt, and therefore could require some form of treatment, but them themselves are not do not increase the risk of an adverse event. So if you have PVCs, this is not a risk factor for sudden cardiac arrest. That's right. It's not a risk factor for sudden death. That's right. What about SVTs? So SVTs would be a string together of premature beats from the upper chamber, supraventricular supraventricular SVT refers to the upper chamber of the heart. So these are strings of abnormal beats that occur together, which is why it's called tachycardia, because it's fast and it's from the upper chamber. So it's SVT. And there can be different types of SVTs. That's kind of a general bucket term. So then you have to kind of decide on what kind of SVT the patient is having. For example, patients may have heard terms like just an atrial tachycardia. That's a kind of SVT. That's fairly benign other than it can make patients feel poorly when they're in it. Or a patient could have atrial fibrillation. AF is a type of SVT because it's coming from the upper chamber, which as many patients listening would know that atrial fibrillation can not only make you feel poorly, but can put you at risk for stroke. So you got to determine what type of SVT the patient's having for that reason. Okay. So we've covered the benign arrhythmias and the right. potentially with consequence arrhythmia of an atrial arrhythmia. Now there's NSVTs. Can you tell us what they are? Yeah, let me just cover one other benign area that comes up occasionally, which is a fast, sometimes patients can have fast regular rhythm, just called okay. sinus tachycardia. It's not an abnormal rhythm because it's regular. It's coming from the normal origin in the heart, but it just makes the heart go fast. It's called sinus tachycardia. Sometimes that can occur after surgery, um, you know, in ways that are a little bit more pronounced than usual. Usually that occurs with exertion or physical activities, but sometimes it can occur you know, outside that those situations, you know, under normal resting conditions called inappropriate sinus tachycardia, that usually is a result of sometimes infections or, you know, sometimes dehydration or other conditions, but it, overall it's benign. It's not putting patients at risk of something bad happening, sinus tachycardia. What you talked about and just mentioned were abnormal rhythms from the bottom chamber. So these are strings of beats together that cause or are defined by what's called non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, beats together from the bottom chamber that are irregular and abnormal. And those are important in HCM because if a patient is having a lot of them, one, they could feel them, but two, when you're having those, it can identify a patient who could be at risk 
for a longer one of those rhythms, one that would be what's called sustained versus what we were just talking about, which is non-sustained, which are usually short, several seconds. If you're having a lot of short ones, it could put you at risk for a longer one, which is several seconds to, to maybe minutes, which is important because those are so fast because they're from the bottom chamber that they don't give patients the you know, appropriate blood supply to the brain when they occur usually, and then patients can pass out. And then if those rhythms don't stop on their own or someone doesn't shock you out of them with a defibrillator at that point, then they can become life-threatening. So a patient with HCM has a higher risk than the well population of developing an arrhythmia. Yep. Um, but is it the number one consequence we're looking for? Does it happen to everybody? Is it common to have life-threatening arrhythmias with HCM? Uncommon, very uncommon to have life-threatening arrhythmias in HCM. Um, obviously it's incredibly important even though it's relatively uncommon because the consequence of it is so impactful, life or death, but the risk of actually having that happen even with HCM over one's lifetime is incredibly low, actually. So we call it low event rate problem, where the upper chamber rhythms that we were talking about before, including atrial fibrillation, are more common. Although when they occur, they're not life-threatening. They can impact quality of life and can potentially put patients at risk for stroke. That's obviously really important too, but they are not life-threatening, but they are more, much more common than the bottom chamber rhythms. So the guidelines talk about um, surveillance right. for arrhythmias on, right. on an annual basis, basically. So what does that mean? How do we check for arrhythmias in somebody who might not feel them? Yeah, we usually do that by what's called a monitor or ambulatory monitor, heart monitor, which like all technology has evolved over the years, as you well know, and many mm -hmm. patients sitting may know, if you go back not that long ago, the ambulatory monitor of choice usually was called a Holter monitor, right? Big battery pack connected to a lot of wires, pretty cumbersome, pretty inconvenient. Um, and that was what we used for a to be worn for you know, two days, at least every year, to do what you just said, surveillance for the presence of abnormal bottom chamber rhythms called non-sustained VT, because we would wanna check that, because as you just said, some patients may not feel those, and those are important to know, even if you don't feel them, because they can portend the risk of a longer one of those rhythms happening. So the way we would check for that is every year, put a Holter monitor on a patient with this disease as part of the annual visit. That's changed a little bit in terms of just the technology, which now is a lot easier with a number of different ways of getting that information through different types of devices that are less cumbersome, lower profile, therefore have a lot of much more satisfaction in terms of patient journey which is usually a patch without, without attachment to the wires. A number of companies make these now. So patients may have interfaced with one or more of those. And those can be put on because they're easier to, 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 to wear 
um, can be put on for longer periods of time now with, with relative ease, several days, a week, two weeks. So we're getting patients are sort of being monitored every year with the same kind of idea, a monitor, but now easier, more convenient, and also providing a little bit longer monitoring period, which we think is good, but that's kind of an area of, un, of, of investigation. But right now, for the, for the, the purposes of the, everybody listening, usually it's a monitor every year for about a week or two. So monitors can pick up things that yep. we don't feel. We may not feel an arrhythmia, but it could be a dangerous arrhythmia. Does it matter if you feel it and it's uh, a, a particularly dangerous arrhythmia? Does that mean you should ignore it or should you still pay attention to it because of what it is? Oh yeah, absolutely. You should pay attention to it. Um, you know, that's why we, you know, that's why even outside of this every year surveillance, if patients start to feel what we call palpitations, feeling their heart racing, or you know, going out of what they think is a regular rhythm, or they feel, you know, several premature beats together. Sometimes it's often felt like the heart coming out of your chest. If that starts to those symptoms start to occur, then we'll put a monitor on a patient right away to see if we can correlate what that may be from an arrhythmia standpoint by demonstrating it on the monitor and then appropriately deciding at that point whether whether treatment um, is indicated. That's why if patients feel symptomatic in that way, they shouldn't wait at all. They should let their cardiologist know that they're feeling these symptoms, palpitations, and, and get that investigated. That's not something you want to wait on. Okay. So they've reported arrhythmias. They come back with the um, event monitor that's been on for seven days, maybe a Xiopath or similar technology right. that sticks on you. Right. Um, and then it comes back with a bunch of PVCs. Right. So is that a medication change? What do you do? Well, if it comes back with PVCs, it depends a little bit on how many a patient's having, but in usually uh, patients aren't having, you know, you know, an incredible burden of PVCs, they're usually having some. And then the question would be, do you feel them? Does the patient feel them? So these devices, like you mentioned, the Zio, there are others like that, they often have a way to um, press a button to um, correlate that it was at that moment when the button was pressed that the patient was having symptoms. So that's how we can correlate whether at the time of symptoms to what that exact rhythm was at the time the patient was feeling that way. So again, we would want to know if they had a PVC, whether those PVCs were associated with or linked to feeling differently. And if the answer was yes, then that may be a justification to treat that patient to decrease or mitigate the number of PVCs occurring. And that can be effectively done with drugs like beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. If a patient's having asymptomatic PVCs and not that many, we may ignore it because it doesn't have any consequence other than that, other than symptoms. Okay. We are getting some questions about AFib, but I, I want to, I will get to them in just a minute, but I want to focus a little bit more on the monitoring aspect and, and what right. you do. Yeah. So we know that NSVTs are particularly concerning, Yep. but they're not all the same. 
they have different value based upon the length of the episode and the speed of the episode. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so so that's that's exactly right. Um, in other words, when we see non-sustained VT, NSVT, it's not a binary issue. It's not like if you have it, it's bad. And if you don't have it, it's good. We, we put, there's some judgment here. We put, you know, there's judgment that needs to be applied here because we do put greater weight on the significance of certain types of NSVT. For example, if there's a lot of different runs over a, a week or two period of monitoring. So the burden is important. Number of different individual episodes, okay? So 20 NSVTs has a different weight in terms of significance than two runs over two weeks, okay? And just as you were mentioning as well, two other areas we put weight on, the speed of the non-sustained VT. You can have slow non-sustained VT. For example, that would be like 120 or 130 or 140 beats per minute, which is a little bit more benign. That's not quite as concerning as if you're having NSVT that's very fast, that's much more ominous. 110, 190, 200 beats per minute, okay? And the length of NSVT is also important. Um, we put more weight on longer runs. So if it's 25 beats together, that's different than four beats together, okay? So those are the three areas, burden, so number of episodes, the speed, and also the length. Those three aspects or characteristics are also important when judging the significance of NSVT. So what happens when somebody has a dangerous arrhythmia? How do you treat that? Are there different drugs, devices? Well, again, it depends. It's a spectrum as we've been talking about. So it depends on you know, which kind of rhythm we're talking about. We'll dictate different types of treatment from nothing to medications to catheter ablations, to potentially justifying protective measures that go beyond those with an implantable device like a pacemaker or implantable cardioverter defibrillator, ICD. So that's the spectrum. So it depends on what the rhythm is that would dictate one or more of those treatment options. Okay. So we do have a question here that goes a little bit earlier in our process in terms of we're, we're already on NSVTs and ICDs, but let's go back for just a moment. Can you talk about what couplets are and why they're significant or not? Yeah, so that kind of goes back to what we were saying before when we were talking about single premature beats from either the upper APCs or bottom chamber, PVCs. Those single beats can sometimes be double, two, you know? So that's called a couplet when it occurs two extra beats together, okay? And likewise, if it's three, it's called a triplet, okay? So you can have single, double, or triplets sometimes of upper or bottom chamber premature beats, okay? Usually if it's single, double, or triple, doesn't change anything other than determining again if a patient's symptomatic when those are occurring. Otherwise, we again, we usually don't do anything if it's a double or a triple as opposed to a single beat. Thank you. Um, let's 
go back to the ICD question. So we have NSVT present, yep. um, and that is the major concern. And let's say it's an ominous looking NSVT, multiple mm -hmm. recurrent runs, seven to 50, you know, 15 beats, and it's 180 yep. average. And you decide you're going to device up that person. Are you also medicating that person? Right. So usually not. Usually not. So if it's a decision that we're making where we're recommending ICD to protect that patient from sudden death because they're having a lot of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, although they may not be feeling it, they've got a lot of it, we may just put the ICD in and there would be no, not necessarily an indication for other treatment, although occasionally we will either add or increase the dose of a beta blocker. Those can sometimes be helpful beta blockers in decreasing the number of episodes of NSVT, but be clear that the beta blocker itself doesn't protect against a long run that would be a one that would cause sudden death. That's why we have the ICD, okay? What about antiarrhythmic drugs? When do they get brought into the arsenal? Antiarrhythmic drugs are generally reserved in HCM most commonly for the treatment of an upper chamber rhythm called atrial fibrillation. So they're used in patients that are having episodes of atrial fibrillation that make patients symptomatic. They feel bad when they're in atrial fibrillation. And so antiarrhythmic drugs can help to stop a patient or make it less common that a patient would flip from regular rhythm into atrial fibrillation. That's what those drugs are doing, suppressing the trigger of atrial fibrillation to make patients ultimately feel better. That's the most common reason we use an antiarrhythmic. Occasionally, much more uncommonly, we'll use it to treat bottom chamber rhythms that are occurring frequently, but that's much less common. So other than medications and devices, what is the role of ablations to manage arrhythmias, both atrial and ventricular? Yeah, so, so similar to like the, the issue I just said about antiarrhythmic drugs, ablations, which are catheters, they're advanced up into the heart and typically apply at different locations within the heart, what's called radio frequency energy, energy of some sort. Um, and those, that's, a, that's what's called, a, that's, a called that's an ablation, catheter-based approaches, delivering energy to change the structure of the heart in some way. And the reason we do that is mostly to treat atrial fibrillation. If antiarrhythmic drugs haven't worked, meaning they haven't suppressed well enough the atrial fibrillation, patients still having it, frustrated by the symptoms, then at that point, it may be very appropriate to do a catheter ablation to more effectively or reliably treat atrial fibrillation by changing the structure of the area of the heart where the atrial fibrillation is triggered from. 
And that's why we do atrial, atrial, atrial fibrillation ablations to do that, okay? So they decrease the, often the burden, sometimes eliminate AFib altogether, maybe even. So that's what we do. That's what we do occasionally. That will occasionally that will be done in place of antiarrhythmic therapies. There may be situations where a patient may go directly to an AFib ablation and not do antiarrhythmic drugs first, but that's because of different individual situations. That would be something you'd have that you discuss with your cardiologist. I'm going to stay on the AFib topic for a second, then I'm going to ask about ventricular arrhythmias and management. But we have a question from somebody who has had a myectomy and a maze procedure. So could you explain what a maze procedure is and when that's done? And then the follow-up question is, if somebody does have a maze and they break through with more arrhythmias, can ablation be tried after a maze? Yeah. I'm making you earn your money today. <laughs> you are. You are. <laughs> I know. We are in the though. weeds. It's all, it's all good. It's great questions. A maze, actually, the, 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 the um, official name is Cox Maze, C-O-X-M-A-Z-E. Different versions of that procedure were up to sort of the, the most contemporary is what's called a Cox Maze 4. 4. And that's, a, that's the surgical, cardiac surgical equivalent of a catheter ablation for AFib. The catheter ablations for AFib are done by electrophysiologists. And so the Cox maze procedures are done by cardiac surgeons. And they're almost always done in this disease in patients who are undergoing myectomy. So they've already had another indication, a primary indication to go to the operating room, which was heart failure symptoms due to obstruction, obstructive ACM, so drugs haven't worked. So they're a surgical myectomy candidate, but they also have, also have a history of atrial fibrillation as well. So in that situation, what we do is both the myectomy and the maze. And what the maze is, is after the myectomy is done, the surgeon will then apply the same kinds of energy that a catheter ablation would have done, but directly on top of the surface of the heart and in the heart as well. So it's a even more comprehensive application of the radio frequency energy to diff different parts of the heart to again stop the AFib from starting. It's done at the time of myectomy. If a patient has that done and then continues to experience atrial fibrillation and is frustrated by that, that may be a situation where we would first try antiarrhythmic drugs again, because sometimes those can be more effective in that situation after surgery. Occasionally, we could consider an ablation at that point as well. So it would depend a little bit on the individual patient's circumstances would dictate what options could be available for them to continue to treat AFib that is again, recurred after the maze. So it can be done. And how many attempts at an ablation can we try if, H if, if the AFib keeps breaking through? Some of that depends on the electrophysiologist's kind of assessment of how much, um, how, how well things were done. The first time it was done, the ablation, 
in terms of the areas that they were able to get to with the catheter ablation. So sometimes there's, there's you know, the, the, the short answer is that, you know, it's one to two times, one to two ablations is usually what it takes to be successful here. Occasionally, we have patients that require three ablations and beyond that would be incredibly unusual. So one to two is the average. Okay, so Seth, I think we answered your questions there, hon. Um, and then we had a follow-up question that, can AFib be familial? Does it run in families? There can be, there can be some genetic predisposition in some people for atrial fibrillation, but the, but in this situation, I think with this, you know, issue we're talking about for terms of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you know, it's almost always driven by the structural changes that occur in this disease that just make it so much easier for the AFib to trigger rather than a genetic predisposition. So we believe it's more the structural changes that almost drive all atrial fibrillation in this disease. For those who were watching the Big Hearted Warrior Tour last night, we touched on this topic with Dr. Mark Zinker down in uh, uh, St. Luke's in, in Nashville and talking about atrial dilation, et cetera. So if you're interested in more on that topic, go watch last night's Big Hearted Warrior Tour and you'll dive into geeking out on what causes AFib and all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's how we're treating atrial arrhythmia. So we have medication. We have radiofrequency ablations. We have maze procedures. We have, that's pretty much what we have for AFib at this point. We, as a last resort, just to mention, just two other things. We have two other options, just real quick. We have a procedure called convergence. Some patients may have heard that. It's a newer procedure called convergence. And what that is, it's almost like, we can think of it as a hybrid approach. It uses, we use both catheters and a maze, but you don't open the chest. It's done through different approaches, okay? So it, it gets a little bit more coverage than a typical ablation does. So we sometimes will consider convergence in patients that haven't responded to one, two, or three regular ablations, okay? And then two, it, second point is the last resort, the last resort to treat atrial fibrillation is called an AV nodal ablation. It's to ablate the connection between the upper and lower chambers. Patients are then committed 100% to a pacemaker or to pacing, but sometimes that can help because it helps control the rates of the heart. The heart rates in that situation can make patients feel better, but usually that's a last resort called AV nodal ablation. It's done so rarely, I almost forgot about it for a second. So it, it, we have a few of you out there and it, it does work for some. So there's options. Okay, how do you manage ventricular arrhythmias? So ventricular arrhythmias, again, I think the concern there, of course, is the uh, risk that, they, that, that, that that may portend for sudden death, right? We talked about that. So the, 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 the primary treatment is to protect the patient who's having a lot of ventricular arrhythmias and is judged for that reason by their cardiologist to be at increased risk for sudden death. And that would be the ICD, okay? Occasionally then, we will consider though, 
in that patient, antiarrhythmic therapy, drug therapy. If, for example, they're still having a lot of ventricular arrhythmias and they cause the device to shock, um, that may be a scenario where to avoid additional shocks from ventricular arrhythmias, we may try to suppress those ventricular arrhythmias with antiarrhythmic therapy, okay? Two is that I'll make the point that we don't often do catheter ablations for ventricular arrhythmias because they're not, that procedure is not nearly as effective as it is in atrial fibrillation, okay? The only exception to that are those patients that some of you may be listening that have HCM with apical aneurysms that have had recurrent ventricular arrhythmias that have probably caused the device, your ICD to go off or shock. That may be one exception to what I just said. That may be a patient, apical aneurysm patient to whom ventricular arrhythmias can be treated, in some cases eliminated with a ablation, okay? But only after the ICD goes in. Sometimes people ask me, why isn't HCM easier to understand? Like, why can't you just make it easier? I'm like, there's so many complications here and there's so many things that can happen. And each thing has its own potential treatment and consequence. And it, it's not one size fits all. And this, this conversation today has gone on for a good like 40 minutes. And we're just explaining some of the electrical issues that could happen and some of the choices that need to be made. And we're not covering it. This is not a, this is not an all things arrhythmia. This is just kind of like a primer course or pre-course on what they are. So it's complicated to, to manage HCM, but managing HCM with arrhythmias just adds some complication there. Um, we do have a question that is, device related, but not necessarily arrhythmia related. When do we use CRT devices and what do they have to do with arrhythmias or are they looking at a different target? Yeah, CRT or BIV. So CRT refers to cardiac resynchronization therapy, CRT. Another abbreviation is BIV pacing, five ventricular. Both ventricles pacing, same thing, same term, describing the same thing. It's a device that's put in that has a lead in both the right ventricle, the right lower chamber, the right upper chamber, and a lead in the left lower chamber, the left ventricle, okay? so biventricular, both bottom chambers have a lead that can apply to that ray pacing at the same time. So contract the bottom chambers, contract together at the same time, as opposed to what was happening before the device was put in, in which one of the lower chambers was contracting before the other one, dyssynchronous. And when you have a dyssynchronous contraction, that makes the heart pump inefficient. So the BIV or CRT device synchronizes the bottom chambers. So they are pumping together, making the heart pump function much more efficient. That's the premise behind the CRT devices. And that's why they're put in or recommended 
for patients with HCM or other heart diseases where the heart pump function has been diminished for some reason, decreased, and the two chambers are contracting in a dyssynchronous way. That could be a therapy to help patients feel better by doing what I just said, making both bottom chambers contract together. And typically CRT devices have a defibrillation capability. That's exactly right. So they exactly. have that arrhythmia management on it, but that's not really why we're using CRT. That's exactly right. That's right. To improve symptoms by making the hearts contract more efficiently. That's the main reason. Okay. So we're answering a lot of their questions. I want to take a slight pivot and, and a little explanation. And I'm asking for some feedback from the community on this one. In a couple of weeks, I'll be down in Washington, D.C., participating in a roundtable discussion related to implantable cardiac devices and infection risks. And there is a concern among some in electrophysiology that patients aren't recognizing early signs of infection and thereby infections get out of control and we get infected devices and we got to take them out and it's really complicated. Um, what are the risks, infection risks on a new implant? as well as a replaced generator for infection? And what do patients need to know about tending to their devices and, and reporting symptoms? So you, you're asking about, you mean the risk itself of, a, of an infection over the life of a device that's implanted in a patient, you mean? or Yeah, let's start there. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, it's a small risk. Um, it's a small lifetime risk that a pacemaker or ICD could become infected in a way that would be a problem, requiring that the device be taken out in order to clear the infection, okay, which is usually what has to happen. So that risk for an individual patient is very low but we have patients that have these devices at very young ages. So they've got many years that they're living with the device. So that has to be taken into consideration when we talk about a low per year risk of infection, we're talking about many years for patients that they have these devices. So that's important to remember. When a device becomes infected, and sometimes despite everything a patient may do to avoid that kind of situation, sometimes you know, it can still happen, unfortunately. Um, bacteria can enter into the, the system, the healthcare, uh, into a, a patient's body in a way that can seed the lead or the generator, okay? often the lead. And when that occurs, those infections are very difficult, if not impossible, to clear, meaning get rid of, with just intravenous antibiotics. Okay. That is why you really have to take them out to, do, to clear the infection. And that is why it's such an important issue at that point, because the risk of taking out a transvenous device, one that's been below the collarbone with leads in the vein and the heart, if it's been in a long, a reasonable time, it, it's hard, it's difficult to take out. It's a tough, tough procedure. It's associated with real risk that a, a bad complication could happen trying to explant that lead out. Now, that also, by way, is an important distinction to the newer devices, at least the newer ICD devices, called the subcutaneous devices, 
which can be easily taken out because those devices, including the lead, are under the skin and are not fibro fibrosed into the heart or vein. So they can come out at any point in time very easily. So if they do become infected, it's not an issue to get those out, okay? That's one of the differences between the two devices. So that's the, you know, that's the issue. That's one of the issues related to these devices long-term in patients with HCM is the risk of infection, okay? And why it's so important. You can't clear it with just antibiotics. Should patients be reporting any type of symptom related to device infections? Is there anything specific that they should be on the lookout for? Yeah, I mean, I've had a couple instances over the years where I've had patients with devices who, you know, have felt, started to feel poorly, you know, kind of, kind of constitutional symptoms that um, are thought to be related to a viral infection or the usual pneumonia or bacterial or urinary tract infection, something a little bit more innocent, but um, are actually because the device that they have is infected and that gets missed for a while. Um, and they're, you know, they're misdiagnosed um, with another type of infection. So if you've got a device and you start to feel poorly, okay, and that can be things like feeling malaise, nausea, fevers and chills, night sweats, that is a red flag. We got to make sure that it is not a device infection. How do you make sure? You've got to get in and you've got to be seen by your physician. And you've got to take blood cultures, which is culture of the blood to see if there's a, a, a bacteria growing. And sometimes we can even image these, these devices to see that they've got a, an infection on them. Um, and so it's a combination of imaging and blood work and, and other tests that can help lead and point to the device as being the source of the infection. Excellent point. To those who are listening uh, in live time on March 11th or any time before March 24th, if you have any um, thoughts on your own infection experience, please feel free to email them to support at 4hcm.org as I will be in this meeting having some deep conversations about how we can help improve the complication risks associated with uh, device infections and create some possible educational opportunities for both patients and healthcare providers. So we're at the table working, so give us your feedback and we'll be really happy to hear that. Okay, so we've talked about atrial and ventricular arrhythmias. We've talked about identifying which arrhythmias are more likely to be requiring invasive therapies such as ICDs. Many arrhythmias can be managed with medications. Um, and I have a question popping in here. Um, I'll get to that in one second. Um, is, did I miss anything about arrhythmias in HCM that we should have talked about and we didn't? Um, occasionally it's rare, but occasionally patients can have an irregular rhythm called complete heart block. Okay. Which can occur as part of the normal aging process of, of an HCM heart, but also can occur as a result of a procedure or intervention like either alcohol ablation or occasionally myectomy. 
where because of those the, the way those two procedures um, are done and the patient's own kind of electrical anatomy can result in complete heart block. No communication, no direct communication between the upper and lower chambers of the heart. They're beating, not talking to each other, which obviously is a problem. And that would require absolutely a pacemaker or pacemaker defibrillator to treat. So that's another arrhythmia to be, um, uh, to understand. So I also want to take the opportunity to bring up a question that comes up often. Right. I'm obstructed. Alcohol ablation sounds easier. Why don't I do that first? If it fails, I'll go get a myectomy. Why is that a flawed concept, Marty? Yeah, I've never liked that idea either. Um, I always felt that as a general principle, I think we, we should try to make treatment decisions based on what we think is the best treatment for us at that point in time, you know, rather than one that may not be, but because it has, you know, other issues and, you know, and then we could always do the other one after. I never liked the purity of that is not, you know, sort of sit with me either. And the other part is what you're probably alluding to is that it's not so innocent to just do an alcohol ablation first because you can um, one create heart block um, and then have a pay, have to have a pacemaker. Or if the alcohol ablation doesn't work, it makes having surgery a little bit more risky. Um, and there's no question that if you had an alcohol ablation first and it didn't work, and then you have surgery, you're almost at a hundred percent chance that after that operation, that surgery, you will need a pacemaker as a result of that. So there's lots of consequences that can occur as, as, a, as a result of the res, residual consequences that can occur because of the way you, 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 know, you, you, you prioritize that treatment option. That's why I don't like it. And that's why we agree on that one. <laughs> that is for sure. Okay, so we have a couple follow-up questions. Um, we'll go with Seth first because we started with his. Long-term care, medication or invasive procedure, is there a preference? I think it's really patient tolerance and how badly they're feeling for atrial fibrillation. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's a, it's a really, it's an important conversation to have with who's ever taking care of you because there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of nuances to that, that, you know, need to be considered. But you know, for example, we have some patients that it's the, look, here's the deal. Part of it comes down to quality of life. How much is the AFib occurring when it occurs? How long does it usually occur? How symptomatic are you if it is occurring? How disruptive is the atrial fibrillation to you in your quality of life day to day, week to week, month to month? A lot of that dictates the enthusiasm or aggressiveness for different treatment options. So a lot of it comes down to that. We'll leave it at that. I think that's a good answer. So um, we have a question with some names and I don't know ages here. So um, it's a mother asking about a child. I don't know if it's an adult child, an adolescent child or a young child, but um, the individual with HCM has never had an MRI. So could we touch on when, what is the age that we should probably do the first MRI in uh, somebody with HCM? Um, so if we can address PEDS, adolescents and adults here? And what is the frequency of MRI beyond that? I think that, that, that at this point in time, I think you know, the way that I would sort of answer that is that based on now, you know, 
almost two decades of experience with MRI, you know, in this disease in both kids and adults, that it would be reasonable for almost all patients to have an MRI at the time they're diagnosed or during the initial evaluation of the patient. Okay. That includes kids and adults. Okay. Now for kids, there's a range there, right? I mean, I don't know, you know, again, we don't know the age that we're talking about here, but I'm not, I'm not sure I'm saying that you have to put a two-year-old through an MRI or a four-year-old through an MRI, but you know, if the patient was a teenager or you know, old enough to tolerate being in an MRI scanner, reasonable to do that at that point. Okay. Because, because we get additional information from the MRI that we do not get or cannot get from the other imaging modalities like echocardiogram. And that information can, in certain situations, inform management decisions about the risk of arrhythmias, about the risk of symptoms, et cetera. So that's the rationale to do it at the time of initial evaluation for either a child or an adult. And then repeat it usually every three to five years is the duration that we consider the repeat study to be done for MRI. Okay. And we know SCAR is important and our quantification is important. And I'm running into some problems with community-based MRIs thinking, oh, we can do cardiac MRIs, but if they don't have protocols specific for HCM and they don't have somebody who knows how to quantify the SCAR well, I don't know that you're getting your money's worth by getting it done there. So I would highly encourage you to find a center for at least that particular test. Agree. Okay. Agree. So you, you brought up a term that somebody is posting here that their child gets night sweats a lot. Is that necessarily an indication of an infection or could they just be a sweaty person at night? Yeah, no, no. I didn't mean that that means that you have, that, that automatically means that the patient has an infection. Night sweats can be a symptom of an infection, but there can be other reasons patients could have night sweats, particularly if they've been chronic, you know, over many, you know, years. Um, so that would be something you just have to, 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 check out. It doesn't necessarily mean the patient's infected. No. Okay. So we have more information on our young man. He was four months at diagnosis and he's now 16. So if he's never had an MRI at the age of 16 and being born basically with HCM, I think it would be wise. Um, it's reasonable. Again, we don't know all he the has a device, so you're not going to get great images. So he's already protected. Yeah, if they have a device, then um, one, you may not be able to get an MRI because that device may not be compatible to begin with. And two, the main, one of the main reasons to get an MRI is to help try to answer the question of, does the patient need a device? But that's already been answered. So less reason, much less reason than to get an MRI there. Okay. So we have somebody who has complete heart block and is in AFib. Is cardioversion and ablation worth a try to get back into sinus rhythm? Um, I guess AFib begets AFib. Depends on how long you've been in it, right? Yeah. That's a complicated scenario, and it would require understanding more information to give that person, you know, good advice. So I'm going to say that that one, you're going to have to really kind of take, take, take to your cardiologist or electrophysiologist and have the kind of discussion that you need to have there because that's a nuanced answer. Uh, and I knew that was going to be your answer, but I'd let you answer that yeah. one. 
That's why we call you doctor. Okay. A um, couple other things, and we're going to round up here today. That we, we went a little bit, well, we actually started a little bit late because we had some technical difficulties. So sorry about that. But we'll wrap up here in a moment. couple of things. Number one, um, March 22nd, the HCMA will be holding an advocacy training session to help everybody kind of get online with our um, Healthy Cardiac Monitoring Act uh, initiative to help all states require cardiac evaluations in children. Um, so that's coming up and what we can get you engaged and we're going to have some call block nights and days coming up so we can all have a concerted effort to speak to our state legislators and make sure that they know what's important here. Um, so that's number one. Uh, another announcement, this is the last day in the last few minutes that you can participate in the ACC HCMA patient uh, survey experience. So please take the time to go do that, and then it will be shut down in a short while. Um, as of right now, we have over 600 respondents. Um, I was shooting for 1,000 within two weeks, but all right, maybe I'll fall a little bit short, but not bad for two weeks of a survey. Um, so we've got that coming up. Uh, what else? Um, I'm going to the American College Cardiology Conference in person in two weeks. Um, there will be some sessions on Mavic Hampton. I will be bringing you some late breaking information directly from the floor of ACC. So stay tuned for that. Um, and the um, Marin Rowan team and I will be holding a special session in a couple of weeks to be announced. Um, so you're gonna wanna stay tuned for some announcements there. We have some exciting things happening that we will be bringing you into the loop on very shortly. So stay tuned. And I think that's about it, Marty. Is there anything else we need to discuss today? I uh, covered a lot of, I thought we covered a lot of ground there and uh, hopefully that was helpful for people. It's a complicated topic, arrhythmias. And, um, you know, there's a lot of gray too and sort of how to approach them in this disease. And so hopefully we did our best to simplify what is a complicated topic to, to make it a little bit easier and digestible for patients. And if we didn't get there, then we should do another one where we get there. Exactly. Yep. It is an evolving con concept. Um, there is one last question and it's from Ross. So I'll ask it. I know the answer, but I'll let you address it. Left atrial reduction. Um, my dad had one of those. It's very rare to do a left atrial reduction, but my dad's atrial measurement was over eight, which big is considered five. And my father was ridiculously oversized. Is this a primary therapy? Is it something somebody can consider to avoid AFib? Is there not enough data on it? Yeah, there's not a lot of data on it and we hardly ever do it because the efficacy isn't that great. And, you know, we've just got other therapies that are, are, are better essentially. So it's, it's hardly ever done today. Um, I, I agree. And Ross, I'll talk to you about that more later. Um, when am I going to Memphis? The end of April. We are going, we're back doing site visits. I'm so excited to get back out on the road. So I will be in Memphis at the end of the month doing a site visit with Le Bonner. And um, I will be out in Denver. Um, I will be over in New York. Um, gosh, where else are we going? We're going someplace else. Might be going up north somewhere else, but we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Um, but we're, we're back on the road. Things are, we're, we're in post-COVID pandemic and we're in COVID reality. So I will still be wearing my masks in public. So if I see you or I meet you out on the road, don't be surprised if I'm still in a mask because I have no immune system to speak of. So be reasonable. 
Um, and to do keep masked in, in close contact with people. We're not over this yet, but we're through the worst of it. So get your boosters, stay vaccinated, get vaccinated. It's not over yet. And we'll probably need another booster in the fall. And I'm on number four and look, no metal sticking to me. I'm not magnetic. I had to do it. I had to do it. <laughs> oh, some of the stuff that came cost out. You, that probably cost you about a million emails or something. Probably. Oh, I don't care. <laughs> If somebody believes that, then I'm just going to go that email. Um, so yeah, there's my commentary for today. It, it's Friday. Lisa had a long week. I didn't leave here till 1030 last night and I got back in before 10 this morning. So I think I'm going to take the afternoon off. Fair, fair enough. You deserve it. Fair All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Tales from the Heart. And thank you to our sponsors, Cytokinetics, Boston Scientific, Invitae, um, Tanaya, and I probably missed some, but they'll be in the ads later. Thank you all and have a great day. Have you enjoyed this episode of Tales from the Heart? We hope so. Please visit us at 4hcm.org, become a member, become a donor, become a volunteer. Great news, everybody. HCM Academy is now available online. What is it? It includes online sessions, learning about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, patient stories about HCM and their management, and an opportunity to join online live with an HCM specialist to go over the slides, ask questions, and dig deeper into your understanding and knowledge of HCM. All CME courses are free and you can find them at 4hcm.org or at thehcmacademy.com. The Big Hearted Warrior Tour continues. For the latest dates, please check 4hcm.org. And thanks to our sponsors, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, Invitae, and Austin Scientific. Did you know discussion groups are available at 4hcm.org Monday through Friday? Almost every day you can find a discussion group, whether you're interested in learning more about ICDs, pre-myectomy, screening your family. There's a discussion group for you. Even if you just want to learn how to balance your mental health, we have that too. So please join us for one of our live discussion groups moderated by a peer volunteer and you can sign up in advance at 4hcm.org just check the calendar for events. Please contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association at 4hcm.org or by calling our office at 973-983-7429. You can contact the HCMA by email at support at 4hcm.org. Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA, is made possible through sponsorship from Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya, Invitae, and Boston Scientific. 